Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks, Alex. How are you? Yes, very well. Thank you. We've had such a bumper week this week, haven't we? We've got a very special item coming up. We do. They're both brilliant, but we were really excited to get our, our first guest. And actually, let's be honest, we were overexcited and, and we, we ran over. We talked for much longer than we were supposed to in our enthusiasm because he was so brilliant. So, dear listeners, what we're going to do is package that whole thing and put it out separately so you can listen to the whole thing. And then we'll just put 20 minutes of it in here. That is that right, Alex? Is that what we're going to do? I think we'll do that. So you have the choice. It's a sort of cut and come again buffet. Yep, do all of it. Go for go for the whole spread, I would say. I tell you something that we are going to bring the listeners, which is unexpected. We have a little contribution from a very special guest at the very end of the podcast. Do <laughs> we, we do. Not? We do. Yeah. So you've got to listen to the end. Um, because there's a, there's a little contribution we're gonna we talk about in our second uh, item, as you're here, we're talking about uh, Dutch art and someone who has hitherto been quite literally a sleeping partner in the whole enterprise felt that she had something she wanted to say. So listen out for that towards the end as well. Indeed. Well, without further ado, after we've trailed things so tantalisingly, I can tell you that we'll be discussing art, life and politics with the sociologist Richard Sennett and the world according to the Dutch masters. But first, the author and professor Richard Sennett has been thinking and writing about how we live and work and move around in our cities for more than 50 years. But did you know... I certainly didn't, that he started off as a professional musician. This is relevant because his new book, just out this week, is called The Performer, Art, Life, Politics, and it looks at where and how we perform, the role of spectators during those performances, and how it all carries over into public life, and particularly politics. It's a book full of riches, and we are delighted that he can join us today to talk about it. You make the point that musical performance is one of the most kind of participatory but I guess that also is highly dependent I mean you write a lot about the jazz clubs of New York in the 60s yeah. um, but you make the point that that was a very particular kind of space yes well it's a space I knew because the jazz club when I was young all those eons ago <laughs> the jazz clubs in Harlem catered they were formal and catering to tourists, but the ones that were part of the community were just uh, uh, performers would line one side of the wall in, in a room. There'd be tables, people be drinking, smoking, talking. And a lot of these uh, jazz musicians were sort of background music for social life. And that was very, very worrisome to them. I mean, people, they were playing for themselves because people weren't listening to them. Now, you can say the spectator is empowered under those circumstances, but the artist is disempowered. Yes, it's very difficult to, to play or do anything like that when people are talking. And Did you ever go to Ronnie Scott's? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, the same, it's the, a problem, was a problem in Ronnie Scott's, the greatest jazz club in London, but people tend to smoke, drink, and, and chat. <laughs> it's that cabaret kind of setting, isn't it? Small yes. tables and, uh, yes. 
I have tried to perform in front of people who are eating or drinking or whatever, and it's yeah. very, it's very it's very difficult to do. The killer is the uh, cell phone. Yes, because you're looking at the cell phone. You you know just checking your messages while somebody else is 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 performing something that they really worked on and they really want to put over to you and you say oh gosh i got, i just got a whatsapp that yes, I, yes. I respond to that's yeah. that's a real killer for theater it is. I it's one of those really interesting spaces where one of the things that it also tells you about is people's attitude towards time isn't it because of course, really, we think, well, you surely should be able to be out of your ordinary life of checking WhatsApps and your phone and talking to people for an hour or two hours or three hours. But maybe the fact that people aren't is also because they have these things in their pockets, of course, but mm. because they have a sense of their time being under incredible pressure, which is very dangerous to the idea of actually focusing on a piece of art and performance, isn't it? That's very interesting you say that. That's very interesting. I've wondered, uh, I grew up with a, a television and I grew up doing nothing but reading, reading and playing music, but nothing for, to pass the hours I wasn't working as a musician. Um, you know, I, I read Balzac, I read all, uh, when I was younger, I, I read uh, C.S. Lewis, all of that, that was my experience, hours and hours past reading. And I wonder if the fact that people no longer are passing time by reading is part of the reason that it isn't that the, the attention spans are shorter, they're fragmented, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, multitasking is something you don't do when you're reading The Wind in the Willows. You know, you're just <laughs> in it, you yeah. know, kid. But um, now you read a bit and you sort of check the phone and so on. There is a parallel in music. I mean, there are people who can sit immobile through the ring cycle, but there are not many of them. <laughs> no, there's not that many. Can sit and, but people did it in the 19th century. A concert could go on for four or five hours. Mm. in the 19th century. People are just there. They had surrendered to it. Whereas when I was working as um, in a quartet, we always had to think about where we were going to, for instance, put Schubert in the program. Because Schubert makes big demands on time and he makes big demands on oral memory. That is that when you hear there are lots of uh, repeats of things that are transformed uh, harmonically, sometimes uh, melodically as well. And people have to pay attention for a long time to do that. Anyhow, for us, it was, we knew that if we put Schubert in the beginning of a program, people were gone. You know, that's a, uh, a 40 minute piece was it. You could, one piece, you'd exhausted them. Mm. Put after an intermission, which was a little easier. But it's a whole thing about engaging people gradually to forget, just focus on the music, forget about other things. So it's a it's an art problem as as well as a social problem. Mm. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, it it absolutely is. You've got many kind of moments like that. There's lots of beautiful moments of memoir that you use throughout the book. Oh, thank you. To illuminate. Well, one of them is the As You Like It and the hospital. And the other one was this this wonderful thing about Holland Bart when you're oh. talking about who this is very interesting to me because we always imagine him as being incredibly elegant and self-contained like oh. his work but but you I mean you do kind of show oh. us this area well, that's nice. he, he was elegant in a yes sure but, yeah. but it's interesting that where you say he wasn't there was there was an area where he was less in control wasn't well it? his real passion in life was music and uh, I, uh, when I first knew him, I think he'd actually come to a concert of mine. Uh, when I first knew him, uh, we were, I often played for him, but sometimes I could get him to play forehands with me, with piano forehands, Berts and Mozart occasionally. And this, as you would think, elegant man, had a real problem, which was when he was technically challenged, he began to over-emote. And it's something that happens with many amateurs, that it's almost a compensatory thing that you become more soulful the less you have something under your, under your fingertips. And I tried to help him over the years I knew him, just relax, feel free to make mistakes, you know, if he loses his place, just catch up with me. It's not a sin to make an error, but for him, he was, it was, you know, music was a temple. And so he played music very differently than he wrote. He is a very flippant writer. Bart par lui-même or Fragment de discours amoureux. These are these are funny books. Mm. You know, they're also sad books, but they're funny books. And he had none of that kind of uh, esprit when he played. It was all deadly serious. It was too close to him, do you think? And it, maybe he was frustrated because he didn't have it under his fingers, like you said. Yeah. Well, the thing about this, that what it signifies is that oftentimes there's a correlation between subjective feeling and incompetence. Uh, and the more incompetent you are, the more tense you become, the more you over-emote. And I think that's true in life as well as in, in playing piano four hands, that if you're not relaxed with other people physically, that you tend to be um, overly emotional with them spiritually, if I can put it that way. For musicians, uh, for all artists, performers. The problem is that when this syndrome kicks in, you're not attending to the people around you. You become mm. very inward. Mm. You know, you're there playing your heart out. And if somebody else is, um, you're playing with somebody else, you're not really attending to them because you're struggling with the music. So in my book, I'm trying to show the relationship between a kind of relaxed body, a body which is comfortable in its own skin, and the ability to cooperate with other people. And I've written about this before in a book on cooperation, but never 
in terms of music, I was interested in offices and factories. But it works, I had the idea for that by thinking about my own musical practice with Roland, what I tried to do and failed to achieve was just to get him to sit at the piano with me, our thighs touching, but he would do nothing. Nothing would happen. And when he had that notion of bodily contact with somebody else, but he wasn't struggling to make music, he actually played better. He played more is more technically competent, but with less of this inwardness, Sturm und Drang. Mm. And when, you know, with professional musicians, we want to do the same thing. Somebody who winds up an orchestra as a conductor, it makes him tense and afraid, doesn't get as good results as somebody who's a, a colleague to them. I give an example of this. Did you see the film Tar? Yes. I'm afraid I haven't, but I've heard about it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's of a conductor who's a, a real bad, it's a she. Yeah. Who's a real baddie to her orchestra, humiliates them, you know, and is full of passion and sentiment. What I and the group of musicians I went to hear it with thought, God, she's not getting anything out of the, the conductor, out of this orchestra. They're not responding at all. Mm. Whereas somebody like Lenny Bernstein, if you, if you see Maestro, which mm. is a pretty good movie about conducting, he is a colleague. He's one of them and he's suffering on their behalf. Yes, because yes. he's also very passionate, isn't he? But I see what you oh. mean. He's, he's doing it with them, not against them or kind of direct telling them what to do, as it were. I played for him uh, once. I subbed in an orchestra he was playing. It was incredible. He said, what is going on here? You know, but he was so nice. I mean, he was a right. So he wasn't cat. tyrannical at all. No, not at all. And you know that image of the kind of Toscanini tyrant. Mm. Toscanini himself could be a tyrant, but he could also be a lamb. It's something about uh, the relationship of physicalness is, and it's learned to get that kind of comfort. Is something that tamps down subjectivity of a bad sort and increases cooperativeness. And mm. I, that's what I want to explain in the book. I don't know how well I've done it, but that's the point of what I'm trying to get at. Mm. Well, I suppose, first of all, you feel more at ease with yourself and then you feel more yeah. at ease at the fact that there are other beings there and you don't have to, to worry. And you feel more at ease even when you make mistakes, you know? Yeah. And there's a kind of Zen archery technique in which you aim to miss the target. That sounds nice. <laughs> you know, and you miss the target, miss the target, and then suddenly it doesn't matter, and then you're hitting the target fine because yeah. uh, you've lost the notion, I have to perform this yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Listen, this is just wonderful, but I'm aware that we're taking up a lot of your time in what must be a very busy week because your book is out. It's just out, isn't it? Yes, it's out. Uh, it was out on uh, Friday. I had a good review in Amazon, so that... that <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> You're all set. That was calming to me, but, uh, you know, like all authors, I take all phrases, not really about me, but anything that's critical, 
is deeply, deeply uh, personal, you know. So I'm waiting for my review in The Spectator, which I'm sure will be horrible. <laughs> so, no. I mean, we had got it this weekend, didn't we, Alex? And, and I absolutely loved it, I have to say. Oh, and I'm so happy. Completely ripped. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Just, You've it's made my day. We were just thrilled when we heard that you would have time to come to speak to us. And it's just been wonderful to talk to you. I did not expect that we would get such a rich anecdote of the nervous life of Roland Barth, I must oh. say. <laughs> the icing on a wonderful, wonderful cake. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That was just wonderful. And Richard, I was so thrilled, you know, when you were sitting in the jazz clubs, I think my father was there. No. <laughs> he, yes, I think so. He worked on ships going between the UK and New York and yeah. he would dock and get straight onto the subway and go to Harlem to listen to jazz. Oh my gosh. And he's well, so wonderful. kind of everybody. Oh, and it was kind of the thing that he talked about his whole life. And then actually one of the last concerts I ever went to him with was Ornette Coleman at, at Festival Hall, which was oh. one, of, one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my life. It was oh, really oh, wow. just Did you hear a lot of jazz when you were growing up? All jazz. It was jazz morning, noon and night. <laughs> all, all the time. And he just loved it all. And it was incredibly important to him. And sort of, I feel like it's almost like a kind of secondhand thing I listen to in a way. I like it myself, but I kind of feel like I'm listening to it through his ears sometimes. Wow. So, anyway. Well, just as a final comment, what the jazz musicians that I knew put paid to the notion that art for art's sake is some kind of elitist trope. Mm. Because here were these jazz musicians, they weren't in Arnett's Coleman's class, but the ones I knew were pretty good. And they were the ones playing in these local jazz clubs while people smoked and uh, talked. And there were people like Alberta Hunter, who I was privileged to know at the end of her life, who worked as a, basically in, in a hospital as a laundress for mm. 30 years. Art for art's sake kept her going. You mm. know? And uh, something not to snoot, you know? Mm. Uh, mm. So anyhow, I become an esthete. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're very glad because it yeah. means we get we get to read about it and hear about it. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> it's really nice to talk to you both. Thank very, you so very much. Very best of luck with publication and thanks again. Yeah, it's everyone's going to love it. I'm sure they are. Well, let's hope. <laughs> okay, thank you so <laughs> okay. much. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. to come on the show, Hetty Judah joins us to take a peek into the world of the Dutch masters. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. What does it mean to really see a painting? And what does it mean to see oneself in a painting? The writers Laura Cumming and Benjamin Moser have each tackled this question through the lens of 17th century Dutch art. And Hetty Judah has reviewed their books in this week's TLS. We're delighted that she joins us now. Hello, Hetty. Hello, Alex. I'm I'm so pleased to be talking about Thunderclap by Laura Cumming in particular because uh, it was one of my TLS books of the year. I enjoyed it so much and I could talk about it forever, really. I thought it was a marvellous book and she's very, she has this very elegant way of weaving together really insightful commentary on artworks with aspects of her own life. And I just, I really enjoy her as a writer so much. Mm. You coined the phrase and then immediately (laughs) disavowed it. (laughs) Um, autobiography didn't you but you you said this is essentially what these two books are yeah I really don't want to be responsible for putting that out into the world but you are sorry it's too good Hetty it's too good and we're going to use it (laughs) well it does seem to be this real tendency at the moment and I don't know whether there's this feeling that who wants to read about art and all these publishers have decided that rather than reading about art people want to read memoirs so they've started pressurizing people to piece together memoirs and, and art history books. I don't know whether that's what's going on, but there's definitely been a, a spate of books that have pulled biography into readings of artworks. I mean, I'm thinking of um, Jennifer Higgie's The Other Side, which is a look at um, the occult in the work of women artists. And that was really framed by her personal experiences and her personal responses. Lauren Elkin's Art Monsters also looks at the body art of um, feminist artists of the 1960s and 70s through the lens of her herself becoming a mother. So there's definitely a, a tendency for this happening at the moment, I think. so. And you've written about it yourself, haven't you? I mean, it's a subject that you've written about, the overlap between life in the art world and life outside of it. I guess so, yes, somewhat. I mean, I've not really gone fully into autobiography, but I've definitely written about the impact that artists lives have on their careers and specifically about motherhood and the impact Mm. that motherhood has on artists careers yes well look before we get into the substance of these two books I wonder if you could give us a sense of the world that they're writing about I mean you mentioned at the beginning of your piece seeing the Franz Hals exhibition at the National Gallery and what is it that the Dutch art of this period says to us now I wonder I mean I think with France House there's this feeling that you're engaging with people over 400 years and they just seem so direct and human and you can just relate to them in such a basic human level and you enjoy being in their company you feel that you know them and you will you know there'll be certain figures that you'll look at and they'll be lolling on their chair and you'll think god he's a bit of an arrogant so-and-so and and I don't like the look of him at all Um, there are other people that you quite like to go and have a drink with Mm -hmm. and there are dynamics going on within the paintings where there'll be you know a kind of cheeky guy holding his glass upside down where he's like come bring me some more wine and so you you really can read contemporary life contemporary relations in such an uninhibited way in these artworks. So completely unlike the staged sort of monumental portrait in other words real kind of glimpse of the everyday 
absolutely and and of course you know what we associate with Dutch art of the golden age is what's referred to as genre painting so rather than there being you know these grand history paintings these grand portraits you have these snapshots of what theoretically is normal life but of course it's always kind of staged and has all kinds of other things going on so you'll get glimpses inside a tavern or you'll get paintings of people flirting with one another or reading a a love letter next to the window or these you know great paintings of the members of the kind of the guard groups of various different Dutch cities and them all sitting around getting drunk at a table eating herrings and drinking wine and you know and also these fabulous still life paintings as well and so we really get this extraordinary view into what life was like in the Netherlands in this period through the art. And also there's so much of it. I mean, many of these artists were tremendously prolific as well. So there's such a wealth of material being produced. I mean, one of the things that Laura Cumming writes about is, well, actually what you've talked about exactly is her young adulthood and her the sort of start of her life in London as a young adult, going into the National Gallery and finding a kind of kinship in these paintings. But it was particularly Carol Fabritius, and that's her focus, isn't it? He's her focus. And of course, he may well have been prolific, but he died at the age of 34. And we don't know what of his works we've lost, do we? No, I mean, she speculates that actually maybe he wasn't that prolific because I Mm. think people always love this idea there's going to be all of these unattributed Fabrizio's paintings out there that or that maybe they were lost in this terrible explosion that gives the book its name but I think she's quite kind of content with these few that there are and the fact that they create this tremendous sense of mystery around him because they don't they don't offer a coherent picture of him as an artist in a way they're such individual works and they're so different from one another you know so there's of course the magnificent goldfinch which gave donna tart's novel its title which is this bird that's kind of full of pathos and personality that's sitting with its leg chained to a platform there are two works that are believed to be self-portraits there's this extraordinary tiny 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 painting underneath a bridge in delft of a music instrument seller's stool uh, which is really the the painting that starts coming on her obsession with Fabrizius. Lucy, I think that's the picture that you've you've used in the TLS. It is, yeah. I was just going to say that. That's the picture that we've used and you have this wonderful view behind him, but you, your focus is completely drawn to this guy who's sitting, looking thoughtful about something. And as you say in the piece, he's got his hand up to his face, but we, we don't know quite why. And, and she identifies with him very strongly, doesn't she? Yes, well, she has this lovely idea that he's picking um, tobacco off his lip because I guess she was a young woman at that point and she was smoking rollies. And you know, quite often when, when you're smoking a rollie, you get bits of you know, tendrils of tobacco stuck to your lip. And so she's really seeing this character in the painting as if he's a contemporary of hers. Mm, mm. Yeah, it pulls you in and then that's how she gets into the autobiographical. Is that one of the ways she gets into the autobiographical element of the book? Yes, I mean, I think the other thing with Laura Cumming is that she was really brought up around art and, and and in a family of artists. So the autobiographical thing is really woven in because she's talking about where she's encountering these works and how she's encountering these works. And one of the things I really loved about this is that it's very honest about the way that we encounter art. So it's not always in the Grand Museum. Sometimes it will be from a postcard. Sometimes it will be from a reproduction that's pinned up in a classroom or in a 
or in a hotel. Sometimes it will be in a black and white reproduction in a book. And so, you know, the real texture of these encounters and the fascination that she acquires for these works comes through. And there's this wonderful moment where she sees one of the paintings in colour for the first time. And it's a real shock. So it's really like seeing an old friend, but really transformed. You know, it's almost like she has quite a kind of um, kind of sensual response to this colour painting. And she's suddenly seeing, you know, Fabrizius is quite a kind of sexy character with his tousled hair. <laughs> You've just made me feel a lot better, as did she, about having a goldfinch fridge magnet. <laughs> because I I do, um, but a sad actually... sad picture to have on your fridge though. It's such well, a sad picture. It makes me. It's not the only one, but it makes me. Just makes me sort of think of it every day, and it's. It, I have to say, it's partly again we bring ourselves to these things, don't we? It's partly that I did go to see the painting when the Moritz face reopened. This is a few years ago in the Hague, and I had to bring something back, didn't I? And then I kind of think of that, and I think of seeing all those paintings and various others, an amazing panorama in the Hague that has stayed with me since. So you always do bring your own personal life into it, and this is what. Benjamin Moses' book is about the upside down world, isn't it? It's about trying to find his way into a culture. He's lived in the Netherlands for 20 odd years and his way of trying to understand it is through the painting. Is, is that right? Yes, I mean, I think he wanted to get to grips with the history of the Netherlands and it just seemed so overwhelming that he writes that he decided to start with the art because that seemed like a good route in. And this idea of the upside down world is becomes a kind of a, a presiding metaphor for the book. So there's a Dutch proverb about the world turned upside down and it's seen as an, an inversion of the natural order. But Moser also thinks of himself coming into a different culture as seeing the world upside down because he's not seeing the Netherlands as, as a native, he's seeing it as an expat. And then this, this flip happens again when he returns right at the end of the book to the United States and he suddenly realizes that he's no longer necessarily a native of the United States either so he's seeing everywhere as an outsider and he has this view of the world turned upside down he's perpetually somewhat looking at things from a peculiar angle. I mean you make the point that this is that there's something slightly old-fashioned about this way of structuring a book that they're sort of essays about as it were the great men of art it, it follows that kind of model as there's, there's only one that's about a woman whereas I, I feel like Thundercat was trying to bring the edges of, of what we know about Dutch art into into focus but there are high points in in some of these essays aren't there yeah I mean I, I enjoyed an awful lot of moments in this book and there were bits where you know he does have a lovely turn of phrase and there are some fantastic anecdotes my feeling about it being slightly old-fashioned is less to do with it being a set of essays which I don't object to at all I'm a great fan of the essay and I'm an essayist myself it was more to do with this idea first of all of you know in quotes the great artists or the great masters and also that he quite often brings in this idea of a progression which I think is very it's a very kind of modernist idea of art history where you have this stately progression from one master to the other and they learn from one another and everything's moving towards, you know, moving in a certain direction. And he refers a few times to Fabritius as the kind of missing link between Rembrandt and Vermeer. And my objection to that view of art history is that it excludes people that were really doing their own thing who weren't building on the work of someone else that weren't learning from someone else that were off you know, people like Crivelli in Italy that that were really 
you know, within that are seen as anomalies. They don't fit into that story. And so they tend to get marginalized. And he's tremendously learned and he's reading an enormous amount, both in Dutch and in English. And I do often feel in this book that he's spending more time in the library than he is in the gallery. So rather than this really emotional kind of gut feeling that you get with Cummings writing about art, I'm feeling that Moses quite often mediated by his learning. Also, you say in your piece, there's quite often there's an assumed we. We think this, we prefer that, which you you not always you don't always agree with it, do you? No, I mean it's funny. I was thinking about Claire Diderot's um, monsters um, from last year, and she really lays into the the lazy use of we in this assumption that everybody's coming from the same cultural perspective, from the same set of experiences, and I think it's again something that's worth being really sensitive about when you're thinking about art history and this presumption that you know with a lot of these older art histories these these 20th century art histories they were written by you know white euro-american men from an affluent background assuming that that was the you know the audience that they were writing for and i just think that today you you can't make those presumptions anymore and I did think that it was, I was surprised that he was using we in such a kind of almost tribal way that he was kind of assuming that the reader that he was writing for would be coming from a very similar perspective. And it, it happened more in some essays than others. And I, I think that a lot of these essays were based on um, articles that he was writing for American periodicals. And so they were perhaps written over a number of different over over a number of years so maybe some tendencies come and go but there's definitely this kind of feeling of like you know oh god those museum monographs they're all a bit you know full of stuff about privilege and class and money and he gets fed up with it and he also feels that a lot of stuff's very dryly written and so he's really he seems not to be terribly into the kind of contemporary museological tendencies is this me just trying to be sort of too generous to that idea of the we is it possible sometimes when one is writing that the we is trying to kind of invite people in or am I am I being rather naive about that I think it can be but in this particular case it's almost like he was saying we prefer our you know we prefer our art this right. way yes this is how, this is what there was we a like. judgment implied in it and a sort yeah. of sense of yeah. exclusion one of the things that I really loved about Thunderclap and there were many things and it's a very compact book but it was that sense that you were being shown things that Laura Cumming herself found it inexplicable that they weren't far more in the sort of public consciousness I mean loads and she writes about Fabrizio's but so many other artists aside doesn't she yes I mean there's an enormous amount of overlap between the two books and and they, they cover a lot of the same artworks, they read a lot of the same art historical material, and yet she creates this, this um, narrative that kind of dances across the page, that carries you with it, um, that dips into her father's life, her life, her daughter's life, that meditates on things like sight and the loss of sight or the loss of um, the ability to differentiate colour, that looks at war and heartache and uh, experiences of you know terrible catastrophe and weaves it all together in this very nimble way which I think does contrast with you know as you've said this slightly more orderly progression that 
Moser makes, which is very much artist by artist, essay by essay. And I guess what I really took away primarily was her idea, and I suppose just the fact of Moser's book is also doing this, that this writing Dutch artists off as sort of what does she call it kind of muddy and materialist and mundane you know it's this this art of the everyday is just a complete misunderstanding of it yes and I mean I guess there are various received things around Dutch art I mean Moser also lays into this obsession with um, materialism as well which I guess comes somewhat out of Simon Sharma's The Embarrassment of Riches Mm. Uh, which is a much earlier book, which I think is actually a triumphant book, but it is quite dense, which looks at, you know, just in brief, it kind of looks at the idea of of the these very puritanical but wealthy Dutch families that weren't quite sure what to do with their mm-hmm. money because it didn't make them seem terribly Christian. And so they, you know, they start to spend it on on kind of humble artworks that depict humble things, you know, whether that's still lives and or genre paintings. So there are lots of commonplaces that we have about Dutch art that I guess both these these authors are um, looking to kind of challenge in their own ways. One thing that I want to really draw out of Laura Cummings' book before we wrap up is also her focus on the challenge that these artists were really facing and the poverty of being an artist and the fact that although we now see these works as treasures, they were not being sold for very much Mm -hmm. money and these artists really struggled throughout their lives. And she's very moving talking about the privations that people like Franz Hals go through as an artist and then looking through that lens back at, you know, the the struggles her own family went through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that that portrait, as it were, of her own family, life that was always kind of hand to mouth but her father built into that didn't he you know the ability the willingness almost the the being driven to change direction if he wanted to you know pursue things that were inspiring him despite you know incredible sort of material challenges yes and I guess this is this then this idea of of the artist being a creature set apart which goes back to this whole idea of the upside down world that you are as an artist, you're set somewhat apart from the rest of society. You're you're looking onto it with perhaps a critical view, an analytical view, and you're showing it a, a you know a skewed reflection of itself as well. Hetty, thank you so much. That was just a fascinating look into the the world of Dutch painting, seventeenth century Dutch painting. But you are working on something completely different at the minute, aren't you? I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about that before we say goodbye. Yes, I am. I've been spending the last three years curating a Hayward Gallery touring exhibition called Acts of Creation on Art and Motherhood. And that's opening in a month on the 9th of March at the Arnolfini in Bristol. So I'm hard at work on the exhibition text right now. Oh, my goodness. It's the last few weeks. I wonder how that feels. Um, It does feel like we've still got quite a a long run ahead of us, but it's going to be very exciting. It's quite a large exhibition with over 70 artists in it. So I'm I'm really excited. Just the fact of having an exhibition that is going to go to different places is obviously a challenge, but also fantastic. Yes. So it will start in Bristol at the Arnolfini. Then it goes to the Mac in Birmingham over the summer and the Millennium Gallery in Sheffield in the autumn and winter. And then next spring it opens at DCA Dundee. Wonderful. So, yeah, if you're so near there's no any excuse. Those, yes, exactly. Near any of those places, go along to it. Hetty, again, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Alex. 
that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Richard Sennett, Hetty Judah, and that final contribution from Minnie the Dog. And don't forget, from this weekend, you can listen to the full version of that conversation with Richard Sennett wherever you usually get the podcast. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. <laughs>